Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Club Book with Kate Quinn. My name is Amy Lynn Green, and I am a newbie historical fiction author and also a resident of Minnesota. So I'm here tonight to moderate tonight's discussion with Kate. So I get to put on my reader hat and join with all of you in uh, discussing history and fiction and some fun questions that we have for Kate coming up. But before I get to introducing Kate, I'm going to give a few announcements. So I want to tell you a little bit more about the program that we have here today that's bringing Kate to us. Club Brook is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, and it's made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. So a lot of people are responsible for bringing this to us today. Also, Dakota County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk, and I'm a Burnsville resident, so especially thankful for them being the host tonight. We also want to say thanks to our partnering bookseller, Red Balloon Bookshop, which is a fantastic bookstore in St. Paul. So without further ado, Kate Quinn is one of the most beloved and best-selling authors of historical fiction today, and she has covered many different eras, from her Empress of Rome series in Ancient Rome, to two novels set during the Renaissance, to a co-authored standalone that focuses on the French Revolution. Most recently, she's turned her attention to the two wars and library journal, I love this, calls it a compelling blend of historical fiction, mystery and women's fiction. So something for just about everyone. Um, in 2017, the Alice Network focuses on a French spy ring during the Great War, followed up by The Huntress, which talked about Nazi hunters and the Soviet Union's night witch fighter pilots in World War II. And then her latest, The Rose Code, which we're going to be hearing more about today, um, focuses on the codebreakers at Bletchley Park and the women who form an alliance to break a German military code there. Um, so really excited to have Kate with us today. Um, and how this is going to go is Kate is going to share with us a little bit about The Rose Code and the history behind it. And then following that, I'll ask a few questions that I have for Kate and questions that some of you have sent in ahead of this event to hear a little bit more about Kate's book and writing life. And also, if you have questions that you would like to submit to the, the uh, comment section of the live stream, 
feel free to do that and our manager will pass them along to us. So hopefully we'll get to as many of those as we can after the um, initial Q&A. So feel free to drop in those questions, but remember, keep them spoiler free because not everybody here may have read the book. If you'd rather send in your question more anonymously, you can send a private message to Club Book's Facebook page or an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Kate and have her share with us. So thanks for joining us, Kate. Thank you so much. I am so delighted to be back among like-minded book people, library people, independent bookstore people. I have missed you all with all of this pandemic, the lockdown and everything else. Um, I grew up, you know, as a librarian's daughter, I was running around in libraries and bookshops, you know, from a very young age, you know, the one who's trying to sneak into the adult section and check out the book she's not supposed to. And the one who's walking out with a huge stack and there's always some adult who's saying something like, are you going to read all of those? And I was, what do you say to that? And it's like, no, I'm going to use them for kindling. Great idea. But in any case, um, with all of the lockdowns, I'm so delighted, even if just on a virtual setting to be back in a among book loving colleagues and uh, booksellers and librarians again. So thank you for tuning in to hear me yatter about my most recent book, The Rose Code, which is all about, as she said, the women code breakers of Bletchley Park during World War II. Now, before The Rose Code, um, as Amy mentioned, I wrote about ancient Rome, four books, and I wrote about Italian Renaissance, uh, two books, and I wrote about a novel of World War I, Women Spies and Russian Female Bomber Pilots, and all of these books, however different they may sound, have a common theme, and that theme is badass women of the past. Now, I often joke, and it's not really even a joke, that when I pick historical women to write about, I want to find ladies who are so cool, so courageous, so awe-inspiring that you can imagine them striding in slow motion in front of a wall of flame like a cheesy action movie trailer, only not cheesy. And you can find these women. They existed. They lived. So let's talk about the astounding real-life women who inspired the Rose Code. And uh, just as a quick reassurance, uh, I this talk is spoiler free. It will sound like I'm giving away whole swaths of plot, but I promise you I am not. It is the fascinating history behind the books that I'm here to talk about today. Now, The Rose Code in a nutshell tells the story of three very different women, a beautiful blue-blooded debutante, a tart-tongued London shop girl, and a shy crossword puzzle-solving spinster who were all recruited to the mysterious Bletchley Park a secluded English country manor where the best and brightest minds in Britain work in direst secrecy, breaking Hitler's supposedly unbreakable military codes. Now, what exactly is Bletchley Park and why was it so crucial during World War II? Now, it's easy for us to forget on the other side of the war what state Britain was in at the start of it. Invasion was not just a possibility, it was looking like an inevitability. France had fallen, Britain was next. On the surface, the Brits kept calm and carried on as they so often did, but war diaries of the time make it very clear that people knew there was a good chance they would see German panzers rolling down Piccadilly and soon. Hitler and his allies seemed unstoppable and one key weapon in their quivers was their use of Enigma ciphers. Now Enigma was a cipher system employed by the Axis military powers to protect their military communications portable encryption machines that looked a little bit like typewriters in wooden cases, which could be easily carried onto the field, onto ships and submarines, really anywhere the invaders were pushing. An Enigma machine at any Nazi headquarters would be set to the day's agreed upon setting and a message would be typed in. 
It would emerge scrambled into nonsense letters, which would be conveyed via Morse code over the radio. On the other end, in the field, another Enigma machine will be set to the same setting. The radio Morse nonsense letters will be typed in and the decrypted message would emerge. Now, thanks to the complexities of the Enigma machine and the fact that every Axis branch from you know, U-boats to surface Navy to Army to Air Force use their own unique ciphers, and the fact that the machine settings changed every 24 hours, the Axis believed Enigma to be unbreakable. But anytime you start throwing around words like unbreakable, impossible, or unsinkable, fate laughs. Just ask the Titanic. So even after not writing a novel about Enigma, I still cannot fully explain how the ciphers are broken because this is complicated stuff. But I can give you a few examples of what the chinks in Enigma's armor are and just how a clever code breaker could wedge her foot in the door. Uh, this is fun, I promise. Uh, one of Enigma's key exploitable weaknesses is that no letter could be encrypted as itself. That means an A in a ciphered message can be any letter but an A. Now that doesn't sound like much of a weakness, but it is. Codebreakers would routinely pick phrases that were very common in Axis communications. Phrases like weather report, which in German would be Wetterbericht, or for the commander, which in Italian Enigma would be per comandante. Common phrases like this were called cribs. And the codebreakers would run along a ciphered message looking for a section of text exactly that long, which had no letters overlapping. Because if no letter can be encrypted by itself, if you found a 13 letter section of cipher with not a single letters overlap to the words W-E-T-T-E-R-B-R-I-C-H-T, then weather report is exactly what it says. And knowing that much would give the codebreakers a foot in the door to make guesses about the cipher settings and which letter pairings were adjacent to others on the machine, which is one step closer to cracking the whole cipher. You know, to put it a different way, who here who is watching tonight has ever played Hangman? You know, like that game where you get a phrase full of blanks and you start guessing what it contains, how many E's, how many T's. It's just like that. The more you get, the more you can intuit about what the rest of the phrase says. Breaking Enigma is a little bit like playing hangman in a foreign language. Now, another exploitable loop in the Enigma system was the wheel settings. For a three-wheel Enigma machine, the operator picked three wheels out of a box of five, slotted them into the machine, and then they put each wheel, which had the full alphabet A through Z, all the way around its rotors, on a different letter as a starting point. The idea is that no one can crack the day's traffic from that machine unless they know exactly which letters the three wheels have been started on. And those letter settings change every 24 hours. So unbreakable, right? No. And this is time the flaw is human error. Now imagine that you are an Enigma machine operator and you have to set the day's traffic. Everybody here, now I would normally do this in a crowd where you'd be able to see hands going up, but you'll just have to imagine a crowd. Everybody watching, you choose three letters from the alphabet, any three letters, don't think about it too hard, just pick three letters, fix them in your brain. Good, now everyone who used your own initials, either forward or backward, think of it as like putting your hand down. Everybody who used the initials of a friend, a loved one, or a famous person, forward or backward, hand down. Everyone who used ABC or XYZ or some other combination of letters in alphabetical order, put your hand down. Anyone who used a three letter word, hand down. Now, if we were here in a room right now, you would be looking around the circle and seeing only a handful of hands still up every time. It is amazing. And the reason that is, is that human beings find it very hard to be truly random. 
our brains want patterns and repetitions. This is why we all fall back on the same set of passwords when we have to create yet another supposedly random generated login for a Netflix account or an Instacart account, which has to contain an uppercase letter, a lowercase letter, a symbol, a number, a geometric shape, and the blood of a goat born in the light of the full moon. So human brains are not by nature bent toward the random. And if you are an Enigma machine operator trying in the constant daily stress of a war zone to be flawlessly, perfectly random every day for years, odds are you're going to start making mistakes and falling back on some kind of familiar pattern. Gifted Bletchley Park codebreakers took advantage of that fact and they made smart, sometimes inspired guesses to figure out what the day's wheel settings might be. One notorious break by my, made by some brilliant women cryptanalysts at BP came from the moment they realized the German operators using a four-wheel system were employing girlfriend names and very dirty four-letter words as wheel settings. So these very proper English roses not only got very good at German swear words, they even figured out from some Balkan traffic that two operators in the same district were both dating the same woman named Rosa and using her name R-O-S-A on their four-wheel settings day after day after day. So that's just a few ways to wedge a foot in the door of the Enigma ciphers. Who originally figured out these backdoor breaks when confronted by a supposedly unbreakable system? That would be the Polish cryptanalysts who'd been breaking Enigma all through the 1930s. So just before the war began, when the writing was on the wall and everybody knew that conflict with Germany was coming, an English deputation of cryptographers met in France with their Polish counterparts who were led by the absolutely brilliant Marian Rejewski, and they pooled resources so the British could start their own desperately needed code-breaking operation. Now, without the Polish cryptanalysts, the Brits would have gotten nowhere, but even so, it was an uphill climb. They needed a lot of brains and a lot of bodies to get a good code-breaking center up and going. To house the first codebreakers, British intelligence chose a country manor named Bletchley Park. Now, if you are picturing something huge and grand like Downton Abbey, I would advise you to think again. A Bletchley Park was built in the late 19th century by a financier politician, an ornate Victorian Gothic pile complete with stone griffins and copper domes, a lot of wedding cake brickwork. A number of the park personnel thought it was an architectural monstrosity. Uh, personally, I think it's a lovely house. I have been there. And in its heyday, it did have its share of Downton Abbey moments. Uh, Christmas champagne parties, Boxing Day fox hunting, a garden of tulips and roses tended by an army of 40 gardeners, which would have been really nice. For me, I wish that garden, garden had stuck around. But after the death of its owner and then its winner, his widow in the late 30s, the estate was purchased by a builder for a housing estate and then it was bought by British intelligence because they had a small army of new code breakers and nowhere sufficiently safe and secret to put them. Bletchley Park was picked for its easy railway proximity to London, Oxford, and Cambridge, which is where initially many of the recruits came from, and also because it was in the middle of nowhere in Buckinghamshire, further away from the Luftwaffe's preferred bombing targets. Now, code-breaking operations started small, but soon outgrew the mansion itself. Soon there were prefabricated green huts sprouting up over the torn out beds of the torn out rose gardens, which really annoyed me. Having a thematic rose garden in place would have been really nice for a book titled The Rose Code, rose code but no such luck. Uh, eventually, the green huts would be supplemented by big concrete blocks as Bletchley Park's operations grew to employ thousands. But at first, it was just a handful of men and women scratching away with pencils and paper in a manor house ringed by barbed wire. Who were the code breakers? Who, demographically speaking, is good at code breaking? 
Well, a great many mathematicians were recruited at first, as well as classical scholars who had cut their teeth cracking the secrets of cuneiform and hieroglyphs before they ever even looked at Enigma. Uh, musicians and linguists were also favored since so much of code breaking had to do with word and pattern recognition, and people with a gift for word games like crossword puzzles were also recruited. But trustworthiness was really seen as more important than innate skills, so recruitment at first went heavily along friendship lines. Male scholars recruited from university tutorial groups and colleges turned to trusted friends and colleagues when it came time to recruit more. Then they turned to associated women's colleges and language schools, and then to women's secretarial schools. It didn't matter how you so much how you got to Bletchley Park as what you could do when you got there. And there was very little in the way of training, which really surprised me during my research. Men and women from all over Britain were summoned to the mansion where they found themselves tossed into the deep end of the code breaking pool with an oath of secrecy and a simple, we're breaking unbreakable access codes, here's a pencil, have at it. And they did, with spectacularly successfully. By 1945, at its peak, Bletchley Park employed 8,988 people and 6,757 of them were women. Now these ladies came from all walks of life. Duke's daughters might find themselves working beside shop girls, university women rubbed elbows with grammar school graduates. Wherever they came from, they arrived at Bletchley and they found a place stuffed with oddballs and eccentrics, a place filled with interesting women, a place like no other. The work might be boring or it might be exciting, but the atmosphere was relaxed, quirky, and accepting. Bletchley Park valued a woman for what she could do and fostered an environment where female voices could be heard. And during the war, women filled extraordinary roles in the intelligence machine. For example, cryptanalysts. Margaret Rock, a statistician with a brilliant mind for puzzles, became a star of the all-female team recruited by eccentric classical scholar turned cryptanalyst Dilly Knox, who insisted on recruiting only women to his team because he said they brought less ego to the table than men. Margaret and the rest of the team, known as Dilly's Phillies, handed Britain its biggest naval victory since Trafalgar when they single-handedly cracked the Italian naval battle plan three days before the Battle of Mattapan. Why station listeners? Betty Gilbert left school at 14 for a factory job but spent her war plugged into a set of headphones. She recorded Morse code ciphers with dead level accuracy and ears like a bat. Without women like Betty, Dilly's Phillies would have had no ciphered traffic to decode. Team leaders. Joan Clark, Cambridge mathematics genius, close friend and one-time fiance of the Alan Turing, was tasked to the Hut 8 team breaking the fiendishly difficult German naval cyphers. She was the team's only woman, considered one of the very best in her section, and she eventually became Hut 8's deputy leader. <clears throat> Bomb operators. Ruth Byrne, she was a young Jewish trainee in the Women's Royal Naval Service, and she spent her year operating the noisy bomb machines, which helped cut down the time necessary to break ciphers. Bombs were operated almost solely by young wrens like Ruth. Tense, nerve-shredding work that required incredible focus. As the wrens said, you had to be 125% accurate. Translators. Sarah Norton, a beautiful debutante who dated the future Duke of Devonshire in the days before he married JFK's sister, sister Kick Kennedy, small world, right, uh, found herself at the translator's table in Hut 8, thanks to her finishing school German, translating decoded messages into English and passing them up to British intelligence to be used in the field. Women like Sarah would have had news of Hitler's suicide before the prime minister or the king. 
Now, these are just a few of the notable women of Bletchley Park, some of which do turn up in the Rose Code as minor characters. Thousands of others worked as filers, indexers, messengers, and more, and they were good at it. Women raised to be detail-oriented and careful when cutting out dress patterns were just as thorough when it came to matching perforations on a banbarisma sheet. Women who spent years in secretarial pools made great decoders. You know, when they heard this section is gibberish because the radio signal faded, can you figure out the rest from context? They said, listen, for 10 years, I took dictation for a mumbler and accounts receivable. Believe me, I can figure out anything from context. Now, granted, the women of Bletchley Park were not common in leadership roles, and they did still tend to be paid less than their male counterparts. But most female veterans still look back with fondness at their BP years, remembering the open-mindedness they found there, not to mention a level of equality with male colleagues, which they were less likely to find in professional spheres for years or decades. Neurodivergent women were especially likely to remember Bletchley Park fondly. Given the staff tendency to recruit oddballs and nerds, square peg personalities were not required to fit into round holes. And women today who might be diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder could contribute to the war effort without being forced to mask their neurodivergence just to fit in with some cultural or corporate policy. Bletchley Park tended to appall visiting person at military personnel, especially with its casual attitudes to things like dress, language, and first naming, but in many ways it was a haven of acceptance. It was also a haven of secrecy. The Official Secrets Act bound every person who worked at Bletchley Park, and to break it was treason. BP codebreakers could not discuss their work with their parents, their spouses, their children, or their friends. The advice from higher-ups was just tell everyone you do clerical work and make it sound dull. The duller, the better. They were even forbidden to discuss their work with fellow Bletchley workers. The mania for secrecy was so strict that if you worked in Hut 6, you not only only had a vague idea what went on in Hut 8 or Hut 3, you might not even be sure what went on in other rooms of Hut 6 just down the hall. You kept your eyes on your own work and you asked no questions. Although wartime diaries and memoirs do record that BP workers did sometimes discreetly trade information to keep an eye on friends and loved ones, i.e., my brother's on the HMS Ramillies, and you see the naval traffic. Can you tell me this ship shows up in any battle lists? And the bargain would be, okay, but if I do, you cannot tell your mother, no matter how worried she gets. And amazingly, that internal bargain held very well. Even if there was a little information trading inside park walls, security to the enemy was watertight. The Axis powers never found out how thoroughly Britain was reading their mail. That level of secrecy did take a toll on the, on the BP staff. Illness, nervous exhaustion, and breakdowns were common. There are record of code, records of code breakers who refused general anesthesia at the dentist or during surgical procedures because they were so paranoid they would mumble something classified while under the influence. Female code breakers felt the frustration of not being able to take any public pride in doing something so much more critical for the war than the kind of you know, bandage rolling and clerical work to which so many women were limited at the time. And male code breakers had it even worse. Many men recalled being socially shamed by strangers, acquaintances, or even their own families for not being in uniform and being unable to defend themselves by proving that, yes, they were critically involved in the fight, even if they weren't at the front with you know, toting a gun. Now, to combat the stress, a thriving Bletchley Park social life grew up. Off-duty codebreakers played in amateur dramatics. They competed in chess tournaments, put on musical reviews, practiced Scottish country dancing on the mansion's lawn, and much more. In the Rose Code, 
My heroines start a literary society and meet once a month with like-minded bookworms to discuss the book of the month. Everything from the latest Agatha Christie to literary sensation Gone with the Wind, whose movie version was still playing in English theaters at the time. Codebreakers went to London on their days off to dance the night away in nightclubs and hotels, despite the fact that the London Blitz was still going strong. These were, you know, young people who working under incredible strain and they needed their fun. Romance also bloomed at Bledgley Park. A hot six mathematician loaned out to aid Dilly's fillies in a crunch, found himself cracking codes with a brilliant young university student turned code breaker, fell in love with her over the ciphers and cribs and married her in a spectacularly romantic brain meets brain romance that I borrowed unashamedly for one of the code Rose Code's heroines. And Prince Philip, in the days when Princess Elizabeth was still in the schoolroom, and he was just a dashing young naval lieutenant with a few royal cousins, was madly in love with a Bletchley Park translator who formed the basis of one of my other heroines. Prince Philip isn't the only royal connection to Bletchley Park either. The former Kate Middleton and current Duchess of Cambridge is very proud of the fact that her grandmother and great aunt were both Bletchley Park codebreakers. Valerie and Mary Glassborough out of Hut 16. Now, after Valerie Glassborough became Valerie Middleton, she never told her granddaughter stories about her Bletchley Park work, which is classic tight-lipped BP veteran behavior, but she was there. And now her granddaughter is one of the royal patrons of BP and helped reopen it in 2014 as a massively restored visitor center and historical site. And I have to urge you, if you are planning a trip to the UK as the world reopens, I highly recommend an afternoon at Bletchley. The mansion is still there in all its gothic Victorian glory. The green huts are still there, the cottage behind the stable yard where Dilly's fillies broke the Italian naval battle plan before the Cape of, Battle of Cape Matapan is still there. And best of all, several of the huts and mansion rooms have been mocked up to look the way they would have looked during Bletchley Park's heyday. Walk into hut six and you will see the desks with the Typex machines scattered with 1940s packs of cigarettes and pencils and 40s era lipsticks and pens. You'll see 40, 40s era coats and hats hanging on the peg and a scribbled note next to the Typex saying, just off to the canteen, back in a jiff. As if the woman who worked that desk has only just stepped out and is going to be back any moment. You walk into hut eight and you will see Alan Turing's office with his notes on breaking German naval enigma and his tea mug chained to the radiator, which he really did because he didn't want anyone swiping it. And I completely understand that because I too have a favorite coffee mug and God help anybody who touches it. You wander the grounds at BP today, you know, the small lake, the lawns, those plowed under gardens, and you'll hear ghostly recordings playing of, you know, with vibrant voices full of 40s slang. And you will swear that if you just turn around, You'll see off-duty codebreakers playing a game of rounders on the lawn. And walk into the mansion, you'll see the commander's office where new recruits like my Rose Code heroines would have taken the oath of secrecy, little knowing how it would hang over the rest of their lives. Going to Bletchley Park today is like walking straight into the past. Now, thanks to experts, historians, and the wonderful Bletchley Park Trust, the achievements of the codebreakers has been preserved in countless podcasts, articles, and nonfiction books. Cryptology details that would have been treason to whisper in 1940 are now discussed openly on Twitter under the handle at Bletchley Park. But even now, male codebreakers tend to dominate the stories being told. Titanic figures like, you know, Alan Turing, Gordon Welchman, and Dilly Knox, they deserve all the praise they've earned in print, but so do the women codebreakers, whose achievements still remain largely in the background. 
that is the story I wanted to tell in the writing of The Rose Code, which was hands down the most difficult book I have ever researched. I cannot tell you how many books I read, how many podcasts I listened to, how many memoirs I went at with a yellow highlighter, and how many YouTube videos I watched where, you know, some cherry-cheeked Brit would be telling me very cheerfully about how, oh, code-breaking is really terribly, terribly simple. And I would just sit there tearing my hair out and just thinking, I have listened to this 10 times and I still have no idea what you're saying, Nigel. It is not simple. That's all I can say. This novel had me researching not just Enigma machines and cryptography, but daily life on the home front and the London Blitz, ration laws and recreational activities and Soviet moles in the highest rank of British intelligence. But though the research expanded and expanded and expanded on me, I still kept returning to the core idea that had originally fascinated me, the ladies of Bletchley Park, who continued to blow my mind. Both ordinary and extraordinary women were called at their nation's time of need, and they pushed themselves to the limit to answer that call. They inspired me, and they made the Rose Code into a tale of female intelligence, female friendship, and the rabbit hole down which so many women tumbled, just like Lewis Carroll's Alice, to find a wonder land that valued them, not just for how they looked or where they'd been born, but what they could do. So... Meet Osla, Mab, and Beth, my heroines of the Rose Code, who are based on real women or fictional composites of real women. They find themselves recruited to Bletchley Park early in the war, and the work they do changes not just their own lives, but history. But you will have to read the book to find out how. Now, in conclusion, I love looking at for the courageous ladies of history, whether it is history hundreds or even thousands of years in the past, or whether it's as recent as the 20th century, because those women existed. Restoring them to the public eye is a very real tribute to them and a reminder that there are scores of other historically significant women out there waiting to be rediscovered and resurrected. At a time of tremendous female activism around the world, reading about women of the past, whether they're fighting to crack uncrackable codes and defeat their enemies or taking up a sign and marching in the streets to demand change, reminds women today who are working for improvements in society that they are not alone. They stand on the shoulders of the tremendous women who came before them, who may not have lived to see the changes they hope to see in the world, but who laid the foundation for generations to come. Their voices are important. Remembering these women, women whose contributions so often go unrecognized and untold, makes it so that their legacies become ours. And that is the story I want to tell with every novel that I write. Thank you. That was so great. Thank you so much, Kate. And I love that. I love the author's note at the back of your book. So anybody who's reading, don't read that before you read the book because it'll give away. Yes. <laughs> but definitely read it afterward to find out what a little bit more of the historical context. So thank you so much. Um, and actually, my first question for you has to do kind of with the segue that you had leading out. Um, your three main characters who were the heart of the book and who you were celebrating all of the real code breakers uh, through those women are just very different people. You could open to a random chapter in the book and just point to part of it and you would know right away whose section that was. Um, was there one of the three that was easier for you to write or came more naturally or were they all about the same for you? Oh goodness, um, I adored writing all of them. And um, I knew this would have to be a story with multiple women as narrators because I wanted the reader to walk away with an understanding of how the intelligence machine worked at Bletchley. You know, how did this encrypted stuff go in the gates and then go on this sort of conveyor belt all around the park 
through these different stations and then come out again as usable intelligence. And so that way, since I want, if I wanted the reader to understand that, I knew it'd have to have women in different parts of the process because no one woman, or at least hardly any, would have an understanding of the whole thing, the way it was all compromised or compartmentalized. So that's why I had three, and I loved all my three, who are indeed so very different. And um, it's hard to pick a favorite among them, but I will say I especially enjoyed writing Beth, who is my uh, cryptanalyst and who I put onto Dilly's Phillies, the team of all lady cryptanalysts. And the reason for that being is that, as I you know mentioned in my talk, it's like, I do not have a mind for code breaking. I think if anything, this research has taught me, I would just be a worker bee if I'd been at Bletchley Park. But Beth is a genius at it. She has a mind that with a gift for recognizing patterns and, you know, going down that rabbit hole. And it was a, it was fun to be able to slip into her shoes because then at least, you know, I can pretend for a little while that I too can be a genius at this work, even if I honestly don't understand the things that she does, even now after I wrote about the things that she does. And so she was a lot of fun to write just because her work is fascinating and because she's so very good at it. It was fun to be along for the ride for that. I love that. That's great. Um, so yes, all of the background that you just gave was fascinating. And I know you mentioned a few times Dilly Knox and other real historical characters that you slipped into the book. Did you feel any extra pressure when writing about the actual people who really existed as opposed to the ones that maybe were more just inspired by historical people and what you chose to give them as far as actions and dialogue? It is definitely a, um, a fine line to walk. And especially when you're writing about history as close in time as World War II, when mm -hmm. you can have people who are still living or whose children are still living. You know, if the further you go back in the past, the you know less immediate this history is in terms of survivors or in terms of um, family being still present. Mm -hmm. But this is a case where, you know, yes, there were people who are in this book who are still alive. And when I was writing, writing, I was quite cognizant of that. I mean, I do have a number of cameos by members of the royal family, as it turned out, which <laughs> history just handed me on a plate and I wasn't going to leave them out. But at the same time, I thought, you know, I'm not going to put a single word into Princess Elizabeth's mouth that she could not have said either as a commonplace pleasantry or that wouldn't wasn't something that she said at some point in her life because you know she is the queen is very old now i i do want to be respectful of her age and her experiences and the fact that she is still living even if she is a public figure for someone like prince philip who is a larger part in this book and i did have to put words in his mouth um, i relied heavily on the uh, biographies of him as a young man and tried to you know remain as faithful as i could to the person he appeared to be, the things he, the ideas he would have espoused, the actions he would have taken, the things he's recorded as doing. Because, you know, even if he is a public figure, and therefore I do not have to get, you do not have to get legal permission to write about a public figure. You simply can without needing to go to that recourse. I do, I don't see that as a excuse to, I have the right to take a hatchet to his uh, personality as I depict it. I do think I have to try to portray the real man, at least as closely as I can imagine. So, in that particular situation, I just tried to be as respectful as I could and do as much research as I could to get it right. Someone like Osla, who is uh, not was not a public figure, I there is a reason I decided to fictionalize her slightly with a different last name and a few different biographical details in my version, and that's because you know she was a private citizen. You know she was not a royal. She was not famous. She, um, she is you know the real Osla, who was Osla Benning, is now dead, but she has living children still. So I fictionalized her a little bit in order to respectfully indicate that 
I am not trying to tell, say to her children, you know, this, this is absolutely your mother in my version. This is just someone inspired very, very much by your mother, but it is a, diff a slightly different version. So yeah, that is a little bit of a tightrope. I think that every historical novelist has to walk, especially when we are um, writing about history that is relatively close to us in time. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think you did the balance well, but maybe a few more things you had to think about than writing about ancient Rome. I don't know. Yes, because you know, if, you are, if you're writing about an emperor who died 2000 years ago, it's like, really, there are not that many people around still to be um, offended by it. And if they are, they're probably <laughs> vampires and they're probably in sewers and they're probably not coming after me. At least I hope they're not. Go so ahead and offend the vampires, Kate. That'll be fine. <laughs> Um, so recently, this question is more just about writing life in general, but I saw on your Instagram, which all of you readers out there should follow, it's a lot of fun, um, on Kate's Instagram, where she shared kind of like a snapshot of an ongoing uh, project that she's working on next, The Diamond Eye, which I have a question from one of the readers about later that we'll get to. And the editor was reading along and said something in the margins like, oh no, this character seems really happy. What terrible thing are you going to do to her now? And My editor does not trust me. Rose Code, I thought, ooh, there was a time when I thought that exact same thing. So tell me, Kate, is it easy for you to be mean to your characters or is it painful for you to put them through difficult situations? I like to say that the tears of readers are the only thing that's going to keep me young. So uh, I, I try to turn that screw as hard as I can. Well, to be honest, no, I do not like doing mean things to my readers. And let's just say there are a few scenes in the Rose Code that were very hard to write and which I did not want to write, but it was the best thing for the book. And so I screwed myself, my courage to the sticking point and um, walls came tumbling down, which for those of you who've read the book will know that's a very specific reference. <laughs> that's, yep. Mm -hmm. We do know. We're not going to talk about it because we don't want spoilers, but I love this. Um, and now, so now I'm going to ask you some questions that readers sent in. And so um, oh, reader, if you're watching this right now too, you can add more on the Facebook comments. These are ones that people emailed to Club Book ahead of time. Um, so one reader wants to know, is there anything that you found in your research about Bletchley Park that you really wanted to put into the story, but you just, you just couldn't fit it in because of time? Um, well, this feels particularly appropriate because the latest James Bond movie has just dropped or is just about to drop. I can't remember. But Ian Fleming, the uh, creator of James Bond, was also at Bletchley Park. He was in and out uh, attached to British intelligence. And um, he I would have loved to include something about that. Uh, I in the end, I didn't have room for it. He is, I think, like a one-line reference in the, in, in the background somewhere. But it would have been fun to put that in because, you know, really, the James Bond myth has done so much to shape our whole perception of what intelligence and spying is like. And really what it is, is that James Bond looked around at Bletchley Park and was like, it has got to be more interesting and glamorous <laughs> than this. Because <laughs> the work of Bletchley is fascinating, but let's be honest, it's a lot of universe, you know, scruffy university types who are hunched over notepads, you know, scribbling on pens and paper and muttering for hours and hours on end. That's how they, that's how they won their war. Um, but there was a distinct shortage of babes in cocktail dresses and martinis that were shaken, not stirred and Aston Martins tearing around. And so James Bond, when he's, or and Ian Fleming, when he began to write his own, he just thought, okay, I can improve on real life here. <laughs> That so that would have been fun to include, but I just did not have room for him. 
I mean, that's fair. And he, he did his own writing, so he's well known enough. I like that you chose to focus a little bit more on the lesser known code breakers. Um, another reader would like to know, um, the fact that you write such like big books, historical fiction has a bit of a longer word count than some genres. Um, do you set a word count goal to keep yourself on track for all of your books? Or do you just have a certain amount of time per day that you dedicate to writing? A little bit of both. I tend to write in the afternoons. I um, get everything done in the first part of the day, dog walking, gym, uh, any errands that cannot be shoved off to the next day. And then I, eat a fast lunch of whatever I can microwave and eat standing up at the kitchen counter. And then after that, I pretty much write all afternoon and into the evening. And when I'll knock off to do some reading and see, you know, some watching of baseball and so forth. So I tend to, you know, I tend to keep my writing time to the afternoon and I use as much as much of it as I can. I try to hit when I am drafting uh, 2000 words a day. I don't always get there some, or sometimes it's more, it depends. Um, Sometimes it's things flow, sometimes they don't, but I always try to aim for that 2,000 words. It gives me a nice benchmark to go by, mm -hmm. but it is not always that part in the cycle. I mean, that's when I'm drafting, but if I'm editing, the goal may very well be, can I cut 10, can I cut 2,000 words out of this uh, manuscript today? Or it's simply like, I need to combine the scene with this one. And that's a little bit different from just trying to hammer the words out. So it really does depend at what point in the editing or writing cycle I'm at and um, what the goal is. But I do have the overall goal, you know, that I know when I, I know when a deadline is, and that's the thing that sort of ticks over my head like a bomb in the background. <laughs> yes. Deadlines and the tears of your readers, the two things that keep Kate going. One thing is that one of them ages me and the other one keeps me young. So either, uh, hopefully it balances out in the end. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, we have a question from one of the Facebook watchers right now, um, live with us. So she says, are there any historical women you're itching to see profiled in historical fiction, but no one has tackled it yet? So maybe it's not a future thing that you're going to tackle, but you just, it's out there. You'd love to see it. There are some, but I'm not sure I want to see who they are because I want to write them. And I don't want to give somebody else the idea and get them beat me to it. So I don't, <laughs> I don't, can I skip yeah. out on this one? I kind of hate to do that. Um, well, here, you can you can cheat by saying another question was, what can you tell us about the diamond eye? And so that could be a good future one that readers haven't yet encountered, even though you have encountered the story of the diamond eye. So tell us about that. Well, that was absolutely one of the women that I was, uh, when I ran across this woman, and her real life story, which I did when I was researching for the Huntress, when I was doing, I was neck deep in reading about the Night Witches, which is the Russian all-female bomber uh, pilot regiment that was flying against Hitler's Eastern Front. And in the course of that, when I learned about, I learned about other uh, Russian war heroines, <clears throat> of whom there were quite a few, because Russians were the only, uh, only allied nation to put women on the front line as fighters not just in support roles or even in espionage, but actually as soldiers, as pilots, as all kinds of things. In the course of this research, I found out about a woman who was a single mother, a graduate student, an aspiring historian. All she wanted to do was finish her dissertation and go you know, create a life for her and her young son, who she adored. And fate threw her on a different path when Hitler invaded uh, the Soviet Union, and she ended up being sent to the front, picking up a rifle, and becoming, you know, the most famous and effective and dangerous female sniper of all time. She had the nickname Lady Death, 
And if that wasn't hair-raising enough to make her fascinating as a topic for a story, she came to the United States on a Goodwill tour in 1942. And she, while she was there, you know, as one does, she, she became BFFs with Eleanor Roosevelt and, you know, like a White House sleepover buddy. And I just thought, I cannot believe this woman is not more well-known than she is. And I cannot believe there are not many, many novels written about her, but I'm not saying a word because I want to write her. I've got to write this. And so that is going to be the next book, which is titled The Diamond Eye, which is coming out March 29th of next year. So excited to read about Lady Death. That is amazing. You'd think that people, you'd think you're making these things up, but I know you're not. So I'm glad that you're bringing these ladies of history to light. Uh, another reader question is, um, are you ever interested in returning to ancient Rome or more ancient history stories at some point in the future? Yes, I would love to. Um, it just is a matter of like when and what will be the right project. Uh, it is, I do like to jump eras and, you know, jump around from place to place because, you know, it's impossible to get stale as a writer. And I remember, I think I'd written three of my Rome books and that was when I jumped over to the Italian Renaissance because I was starting to get the feeling like if I had to type the word T-O-G-A one more time, I was gonna like put, stab a pencil into my eyeball. And so I kind of wanted that break to a different era. And then it was a little bit the same thing in part when I decided to jump to the 20th century. So, um, but I, ancient world was always my first love. So really never say never. Uh, it would just be a matter of what will be the right project and would, would it be a smart choice? Is it what readers would like to read? And, um, but there's still so many stories in the ancient world to be told. And I would, you know, I would love to tell more of them. Love that. And yes, so this, this question could be about your ancient Rome books or about the ones you've written more recently, but somebody wants to know, What's your favorite primary reference source that you've uncovered in all your years of researching a book? Is there anything that stands out to you, whether it's a letter, a newspaper account, or photo that's really made you stop and just be in awe? Well, I have two. I, I can think of two. And um, one, one for my most recent, one for my very first book. And for the most recent, um, when I was writing Lady Death's story, I was very much helped by the fact that she wrote her memoirs later in life. And so I really had the shiver making sensation of you're writing a real person. And that that's really a first for me when I'm writing not just a fictionalized version of a real person, but a real person using her name. And I actually had her thoughts, her thoughts on everything that she did, her version of what happened. And that was a real change for me, you know, because normally speaking, you know, I do write about people who are a little bit fictionalized, so I have more leeway there. And also I write about people, if, if they did have their, if they were real people, they probably didn't, they didn't have a memoir, they didn't have a diary, you know, a, a real window into their head. So her memoirs made such fascinating reading, and I just was in awe every time I was trying to take notes about, I gotta use this, and I gotta use this, and I gotta use this. And I loved that. And on the flip side, I remember when I first was starting to write my ancient Rome novels, I was reading, I think it was Suetonius, which is one of the primary sources for um, information on some of the first century emperors of Rome. The thing is, though, is that Suetonius is the most gossipy of writers. It's all omens and, you know, rumors and, you know, the most salacious stuff you've ever heard sometimes. And it kind of makes me, it almost makes me think that, you know, it was an early lesson in when you're looking at primary source documents, it's just because something has survived for 
hundreds or even thousands of years, it does not mean it's reliable. And it made me think, you know, it's like, what if someone a thousand years from now was writing a novel about, you know, Brad and Angelina, a historical <laughs> novel. And the, oh, but the only sources that survived around them were Us Weekly stories. How do you write that story when you have a surviving story, surviving source from the era that you're looking at, but that source is salacious and half made up and, or, you know, deeply, deeply biased. And so that makes me, that, that was an early lesson for me is that like, all right, just because something came from the time that you're writing about and purported to be very serious, it doesn't necessarily mean it is reliable. But I honestly think that's part of the fun of historical fiction is looking at your sources and seeing where the blind spots are, seeing where things may have been improved or changed, where things may have been left out and making that, you know, part of your narrative as you craft it. That's great. And now I really want to read someone's sci-fi novel where they cover a novelist who's writing about 21st century celebrities based on their Twitter accounts. Oh, that would be hilarious. I would read it. Do it. it. Someone out there who's listening, if you know a sci-fi author, let them know. We want to read it. All right. Well, here's one that well, maybe it's not easy if you don't keep track of time this way, but approximately how long does it take you from um, starting the process, whether you start with research or you start outlining or to the final word of your first draft to the book actually coming out? Oh, good Lord. That's going to, uh, that's going to change with every book. Every book is different. Uh, you never know going in whether your book is going to be a major headache or whether it's going to be an angel to write. I think it's kind of like having children, you know, some babies are just born, they sleep through the night, they're, you know, they have, they give you no trouble. And some babies are absolute little hell beasts as soon as they're born and they have no need to sleep whatsoever. And you know, you have no idea what you're going to get. Um, with the, you know, just for two examples, I mean, I think for the Rose Code, it was nearly four years from this moment when I, I thought, I wonder if I could write a book about women codebreakers at Bletchley Park to the moment when I was done with like all 90 editing rounds and it finally was handed in. All right, no more changes. This is going to publishing. And that's that was a long time for me. It tends to be a bit shorter. I try to definitely do a first draft. I do a first draft usually in under a year. And then there's many, many rounds of editing. But on the other hand, um, when the diamond, when I wrote the diamond eye, I ripped that first draft all 105,000 words of it, I ripped that first draft out in uh, three and a half months flat. And that is fast for me. But on the other hand, uh, it started in October of 2020. And that was the season of lockdown that seemed to have no end in sight. Vaccine was nowhere in sight. Uh, the election was raging. The fallout from the election insurrection in January. And I think honestly, my muse took one look at what was going on outside the window and said, I think I'm going to the Russian front and I'm going to stay there for a while because it sounds like a spa day. And that's more or less what she did. She went to the Russian front and stayed there. And that's why that book happened so fast. I have no idea any other explanation how it could have happened that way. And I don't think I could replicate it if I tried. <laughs> so honestly, every book is, is truly different. So there you go, readers. One reason to be thankful for 2020 is that it made it easier for Kate to write the diamond dive. Oh, that's great. It did for whatever reason. I, I wouldn't go through it again, but it's like, uh, I'll take it. 
And that's also good to know the uh, range in there for readers who immediately finish your book in one night because they stay up all night reading and then ask you when you're going to have your next one. Uh, There's a lot that goes into it. So thanks for sharing that little behind the scenes glimpse of your process there. Um, So when in regards to other books, somebody wants to know if there are any other historical fiction writers out there you would recommend to others. And also, if there's there are any other genres you like to read in when you need a break from historical fiction. So things like you, things- Oh, goodness. I will read almost anything as long as it's well-written and it's a good story. I mean, um, I have, I love a good Regency romance when I want something light and which will make me laugh and will make me sigh a little bit. I love sci-fi and space opera. I love, you know, women's fiction. I love- you know, mysteries and hard-boiled action, you know, I love historical fiction, I will read anything. And I tend to flip around a lot as far as what I read because, what I read because I'm not, I don't entirely understand what people say they only read one kind of book because that seems to me like only eating one kind of food for the rest of your life. Your brain wants a change of, you know, has a palate of its own and it wants a change of flavors now and then. So I tend to flip-flop between, you know, if I read a bunch of rather light books in a row, I want something dense and heavy. If I've read something, you know, really quite sad, I really want something that is going to be guaranteed to make me laugh. So I tend to do a lot of moving around. But it is true, historical fiction is sort of my first love. Um, For some of the writers who I enjoy, uh, Bernard Cornwell is the best in the business when it comes to the blood and battle books. Um, There is, let's see, I know so many people now who are wonderful friends of mine. For women's fiction, uh, Stephanie Thornton is fantastic, and she does some ancient world stuff too, for those of you who like that. I love you know, Stephanie Dre and Laura Kamoy, who I co-wrote, who are some of my co-authors for uh, the a French Revolution novel that we did and they do founding mother books together and Stephanie just had a book out about uh the women of Chateau Lafayette and you know then there are I, all the all of my agency sisters from my agent are apparently like historical novelists and women's fiction novelists so I could see a roster if you just look up the agents the writers represented by Kevin Lyon and go down the list all their books are great <laughs> Yes, and that's one way that following authors on social media is helpful because you're always recommending books there. So that's a great way. Hot tip for all of you watching is make sure you watch an author and they will, Kate will be recommending books right and left. Um, you'll that never- is the fun part. I love talking books that I've just read, books that I adored, you know, that, and, you know, giving other writers a shout out. It's one of the fun parts about this business. Last book that I read was you know, the Pacific Rim meets, uh, Pacific Rim meets the Tang Dynasty and, you know, with, um, called Iron Widow. And it was like, you know, the most fabulous thing I've read in a long time. So I encourage you to pick that one up. (laughs) Fantastic. I love that. People are jotting things down right now, which is great. Um, so with that, there was a reader who submitted a question earlier that said, so when you said like, you love really well-written historical fiction. To you, what makes a story one that is really good and well-written and that you immediately want to finish and put on your keeper shelf and recommend to others? Um, For me, good historical fiction, um, I think it should be funny or it can be. Uh, Sometimes the genre can be deadly dull or not dull, but just deadly serious because, you know, there's this, the history and we get all fascinated by that, but it's like, let's, let's let it dance let it dance too, because, you know, it's real life. And it, even if it is real life that took place in the past and real life is full of conundrums and humor. So I love to see historical fiction with a sense of humor. I love to see prose that sparkles. I love to see a writer who understands that 
when you're telling a story, you can't just march down the timeline of facts. You need to have a story that, you know, understands that the first job, even in historical fiction, when you're dealing with real history, the first job of a storyteller is always to entertain. So I like to see a story where the writer understands that and knows that the story has to race along and has to have characters that you want to root for and characters who are going to change in, in the arc, in the course of their arc and in the course of their tale. And I want to see people... I want to see people I like to root for. It doesn't mean they need to be likable. I think there's a sort of thing about, yeah, but are they likable? And it's like, no, I don't care if someone is necessarily likable to want to find out what happens to them. I want to find someone who's, I want to read about someone who is, makes me think, wow, I want to see what you're going to do next. So if you have pros that dances, and if you have, you know, characters who are compelling in some way, and you have above all, you know, for historical fiction, a world that takes me somewhere in the past. You've built that world so I can literally step into the into the closest thing that I will ever come to a time machine and travel somewhere into the past. You are absolutely going to get me. That's a great checklist when looking at a book. Um, well, okay, I think we have time for just one more because keep it short. thank you everyone for sending in wonderful questions. But I'll end with kind of a fun one that someone asked earlier, which was that, um, in your research into slang of the era or expressions, especially fun British ones that we Americans might not be familiar with, were there any that you just found really fun and are tempted to use in your actual daily life after learning them? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I did a lot of research into the slang of the 30s and 40s uh, for the Rose Code, and there's such great phrases there. I mean, like, um, isn't it more fun rather than to say, you know, if you have a, a date with a handsy guy, rather than say, well, he was such a jerk. Isn't it more fun to say he's NSET, which means non, not safe in taxis? Isn't it more fun to say, you know, you know, like rather than say, well, I'm feeling a little uh, lightheaded after that champagne to say, like, I'm absolutely sloshed on fizz, darling. Or is that or rather to say, like, hey, I want to go out, you know, have a great night out. It's like I'm going to spray. I'm, I'm going to really splash out tonight. It's more fun to say topping than terrific. It's more fun to say, you know, oh, he's absolutely bottled rather than, you know, he's drunk. The, the language is so vivid. You know, the period slang was just such fun. And I wish a lot of it would come back. And I have to admit, after writing uh, my hero in Osla and the Rose Code, I still say topping. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I think tonight's discussion has been absolutely topping. So I can't think of <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. So thank you all for being here. Thank you, Kate, so much for sharing with all of us. This has been just a joy to spend some time and talk historical fiction. No, thank you for having me. It's so wonderful, even, uh, even through a screen, to be talking to and with so many fabulous book lovers again. So thank you for tuning in uh, to hear us crab on, as the saying would go. So again, thank you all so much for being here. It's been a joy. Uh, readers like you make events like this so much fun. So thanks for your questions and interactions and have a great evening. That wraps up our Dakota County Library event with Kate Quinn. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Dan Pipenbring. Journalist and magazine editor Dan Pipenbring co-authored Prince's revealing memoir, The Beautiful Ones. Although the music superstar passed away before its completion, Prince's hand-picked collaborator finished the manuscript in a way that realized his grand ambitions. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. 
Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>